Live from the shop around the corner, it's Drilled Trains of Thought. Hi Tim, this is this is pleasant. This it, is a nice little spot here. Yeah, I, I love low cozy bookstores. It <laughs> makes me feel at home. Oh, uh, it should, it should. Um, but and this place looks nice. Seems like they're going to be going out of business here pretty soon, though. That's really sad. Well, they still got a couple books signed. Local authors. How about go? Yeah, it's support. We'll support the people. Yeah, support. Them. It seems like she's fighting some hard fight to really stay in business here, but. Uh, Although it does look like she managed to get a book signing here. That's kind of cool. That is cool. Let's so, go. You want to go check out? Yeah. S- check that out Let's and see who's here. Hey, wait a minute. Do this, I know that guy? Yeah. Uh, th- I believe that's a guy who's been, we've we've had him on the podcast before. Yeah, what's what's his, his, na- his name? His um, name. I believe uh, my name. <laughs> guys, I can't believe you forgot already. It's uh, Nathan Listener Feedback Marchand. Oh, why, hello. So for those of you who are playing the Derailed Trains of Thought bingo game, you may now put a spot, and you now put, I put a marker on the spot labeled Name Drop Nate. <laughs> there we go. Yes, I am that guy. Well, hello. I'm glad, maybe you can join us for this podcast. Uh, hey, yeah, know, this is handy. I, 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 it's been a little slow today, you know, the, the, uh, the store's going out of business, and I think the cute blonde who's running it is, keeps talking about some dude she met on the internet. I, I don't know what's going on with that. Well, you know, this is the 21st century. It's to be expected, I yeah. guess. Well, the weird thing is, I think they met 20 years ago or something. It's kind of weird. Whoa. <laughs> well, that's how that's that's the podcasting. Uh, it's amazing how how often lately the future doesn't seem quite as futuristic as we once thought. <laughs> no, it doesn't. But uh, well, what and, brings you guys here? You know. Well, the podcast. I'm not oh, sure. Yeah, I keep forgetting the podcast is like your TARDIS. Yeah. yeah it, well, it, yeah. Except and, it has even we have even less control over it than the doctor does. Yeah. I think. It's like our sliding. <laughs> Sliding. Yeah, you make me. You make me happy. But so. as as long as you're here, we should join us for um, story school. All right. Luckily, uh, story school today. We had discussed. Well, we had some other options, but now that you're here, Nathan, we thought, well, maybe we'll talk about the writer. Or it's creator as promoter. Oh, really? Yeah, because we thought, hey, you're pretty you're good doing at, this right now. Or at I mean, least you've done a lot of yes, selling of your yes. own books. Yeah, I, uh, and I occasionally hawk your stuff, too. Which you is know? beneficial for me. So, <laughs> you know, well, I, mean, I rag on you guys for name-dropping me on your podcast, but I've, I, I name-drop you just about everywhere I go. So. <laughs> I'm known far and wide. <laughs> you're welcome. As Nick. <laughs> they shall know him as Nick. <laughs> you can call me. What is it from my Python and the Holy Grail? My name is... Is it Tim? Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, you're trying to steal his thunder. Oh, well, I used to have people quote that to me all the time at school. Oh, so. Okay, okay. I but, remember you on your old Zanga blog. That was your uh, your avatar on there for a while. It was Tim <laughs> the Enchanter, I think. That, was that? Was, no, was that I think I, I think that was someone else because I used Bizarro Randy. Yeah. Um, no, 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 that was that was the picture that you used, not your name. Yeah, I still think it was the other because there wasn't there another Tim that went to TUFW for a while. Sure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. there is a couple. I, I can't remember. I can't remember his last name now. Suddenly, but uh, we're not here to talk about uh, yeah, who, college for, buddies. Right. Forget that guy. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. So here, there is only one Tim. <laughs> so here's the question. Okay, writing obviously takes a lot of time. 
or, or video, you know, making videos and stuff. But mm-hmm. nowadays in this new um, person, uh, what do they call this culture? This information culture, this... Um, Self-promoting culture. Yeah, there's a fancy word they use for like Seth Godin. culture. Yeah, it's something like that. Value-driven culture. Um, I wish. But nowadays, for many writers, unless you get a very big uh, publisher... You do a lot of the footwork. Even if you get published with a small publisher, you used to do a lot of the footwork. And the internet stuff has opened up the possibility and stuff like that. Well, and um, self-publishing co- costs have gone way down, so yeah. it's easier for anyone to self-publish. It's easier for anyone to have an actual book of their work done. The question is, you still got to get people to read it. Or you get, if you're a video producer, you got to get people to watch it. You get eyeballs on the product. So, Nathan, I'll ask you first, since you've probably done more of this than any of us, what, what sort of... Um, Things have you realized you have to do to try to get out, get get your your works out there to an audience? Uh, knowing the right people is definitely a big plus on that. And if you don't necessarily know anybody, go out of your way to make yourself known to those people. You know, make friends in the right places, so to speak. The first time I really got into this, I mean, I had done some, you know, a few book signings here and there. You know, like first book signing I ever had was at your sister's yeah. shop. Summer stories, which sort of still exists, you know. But at that point, I only had one book. Then I got a couple of other ones, and then oh, our mutual friend Eric Anderson introduced me to Gen Con and said that they had a an author's avenue there. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know anybody who was on the inside with Gen Con, so I had to contact them personally and get information and find out what uh, what hoops I needed to jump through, what forms and whatever that I needed to fill out in order to get on there. But the advantage that I've had since then is once I got into their system, whenever the vendors hall lots became available again, they would contact me and mm-hmm. say, it's available if you, want to, if you want to purchase a table. So that way it, you know, it freed me up so I didn't have to make as much effort. So that's one thing that you can, uh, that you can do because a lot of times if you do that, then they will contact you back. You know, you and I have been invited to various the, book signings. Yeah, to various book signings. Uh, we're going to be doing a couple of them in a few weeks here ourselves. Mm-hmm. Most notably, we'll be going to the the Allen County Library's Author Fair again, mm-hmm. and that came about because someone. I think I I can't remember how I found out about that. I can't remember if someone suggested it to me or if I stumbled upon it. And how did you get in on that? I can't remember if I introduced you to it because once the both of us went there, we shared a table. And then it's been like And then they just then. keep asking us to come back. Yeah. So connection obviously is very important. Yes, and very important. That's the, that's the phrase I was trying to think of, connection economy. You know, everyone, I used to read a little bit of Seth Godin and stuff like that. They always talk about making your tribe, and which I'm, I'm like, oh, I'll do this. And then for like two days later, I'm like, I'm going to do a different project because that's me. But... Have you managed to, I mean, I know that you've started to get a couple people who follow, you, who like read one thing and they want to read mm-hmm. other things and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess, is that just basically doing the same thing over and over again until you get it? Or has there been something that's really paid off? Well, I'm trying to figure out what you're talking about in terms of how I sell the books. And or? getting people to actually connect and read it and talk about it or want other things. Uh, one of the things that I have discovered that I, when it comes to how I sell books, it's, it's interesting that we're talking about this because one of my next videos on my YouTube show, which I you know say is the unofficial sister show. It's, it's a yeah. promote... Uh, it's going to be one where I'm going to talk about how to make uh, how to pitch your book, not to publishers, but to yeah. potential readers. Yeah. 
since I always do something related to Gen Con. I'm guessing you're also not talking about throwing books, you know, like a baseball. <laughs> yeah, that actually might help. He's like, you, read this. <laughs> Pitch it at him. <laughs> uh, but no, uh, one of the things I've, as I was trying to say that I've discovered as I'm good at is forming relationships with, uh, with the passersby, especially at conventions. I watch to see, you know, like what t-shirts they're wearing, what costumes they're wearing, or if they have something with them that I know that tells me right there they might be interested in the books that I'm selling. For example, this, I think it was this year at Gen Con. Yeah, it was this year at Gen Con. There was a, there was a woman walking by and she had a Godzilla plushie that she had customized, looked like he was wearing a, a suit and a hat and stuff like that. And I pointed out that she had the plushie and wanted to see it, took a picture of it and all that. And then said, oh, and by the way, I have a giant monster book. <laughs> and I don't know if I made a sale, but I at least got her to stop, look at my table, look at that book, and I got to talk about the book with her. You know, the nice thing about that is that, you know, because there are millions of books published every year. And I don't know if that's an exaggeration. Probably um, not. <laughs> but... People don't have that much time. I mean, they're only going to read a handful of books a year. Mm -hmm. And just get past the basically, I'm going to read what everyone else is reading. You have to make some sort of connection in inroad into, oh, wait, I already like this stuff. Or I really like your other stuff. Or yes, this is just like something else I read. Or and it seems like that's something you're doing and something... Well, too, and, and, it, and it seems useful that uh, you're uh, pointing out, you're admiring something that she was also doing. Mm -hmm. That's always, that always very valuable. Yeah. Like, and even if it isn't necessarily something that... I know I can make directly relate to any of the books that I'm selling. Sometimes all I have to do is just say, you know, that's a great costume or I know who you're cosplaying or yeah. something like that. And that's enough to get them to come over and just strike up a conversation. And, you know, we can talk a little bit about, you know, about the costume. I'll ask some questions of how you make that and yeah. things like that. And then I can, and then they might look at what I'm doing and be a little bit curious and say, you know, what are you doing here? And I'd say, well, I'm here selling my books. Yeah. And then I can kind of run through a little bit of, you know, what each one is and, you know, and ask, you know, is there anything here that looks interesting to you and things like that. So it doesn't necessarily have to be directly related to the product that mm -hmm. you're selling, because if people get the idea that the only reason that you're talking to mm -hmm. them is because you're trying to sell them something, they are going to be turned off by that. Well, that's, I mean, again, I, my stuff's all in theory because I don't actually promote my stuff. But um, <laughs> but you have I actually been to you. some book signings. Well, not only that, but I know, like, when Zach and I will talk about it, the way you use social media is to have conversations and make relations with people and then also say, hey, and I have this thing, like mm -hmm. Nathan's doing in real life mm -hmm. on conventions and not just everyday spamming Twitter with buy my book. Which I see a lot of, actually. Not people do, but they they always they always, at least I've always heard that you know you make the relationships with people and you go to boards and you share stuff and you you know you live in this world and then everyone kind of gives. The problem is I I'm a internet hermit largely, so I, I I've never made the effort to be a very good promoter, um, which is why we brought you here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so, I mean we've we've struggled with this for the podcast and for other things for for quite a while, and so it's 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 just something that. It's hard to break out of your uh, your ruts once you're into it. Yeah. Now, I guess the question is, did you make a, I mean, do you think that's just something that happened naturally, basically made a decision, hey, I'm going to do these 10 things to promote. I mean, that's kind of how you started your vlog and stuff, right? Yeah, it, it was kind of like that. Most of what I do, because I have a lot of friends over who, at the Authors Avenue and Gen Con. There's a lot of, there's several people who come every year and I've uh, networked with them and gotten to know them and i will tell you right now for every writer who comes to Gen, that goes to gen con they all have a different style for how they how they sell their stuff 
it really depends on your personality. I would never advocate someone to try to make themselves into something that they're not just because they see, you know, this is how so-and-so sells their book. I'm gonna try to sell my book like that, but it's because it will be a chore for you to try to put yourself into that mold. You'll be like an actor trying to take on a role mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that's gonna drain you emotionally and mentally because you have to put yourself into this mode for eight, 10 hours a day while you're in the vendors, a vendor hall trying to sell your books. Yeah. So like I said, it's going to depend on that because I think authenticity can help, can help you sell your books. So as long if people see that you're not putting on an act, yeah. that will definitely help. But like I said, you know, I saw different guys who did different things. The, my friend, Ed Russell, who writes a lot of horror and zombie books, he brings, he likes to bring props that are related to, you know, whatever he's selling. You know, there was one year he brought, I can't remember if he made it himself or he had someone make it for him, but he brought in this thing that looked like a zombie head and he would, <laughs> it had a hole on the top and it was meant for people to stick their hand in and it felt kind of soft and things like that on the inside. People could reach in and get candy, wow. out, you know, nice. so the kids would come over and play with it. <laughs> there was another year where he did a, uh, a choose your own adventure sort of a book and he had some, he commissioned someone to make this uh statuette of the the main antagonist in that book that was probably about two feet high and it would sit there on the table had a cane and things like that one year the he made an anthology of giant monster stories which i contributed yeah. to so he went to walmart this was in 2014 after the gareth edwards godzilla was out and he bought this giant godzilla figurine yeah. that was probably about two feet long if you and it was massive bought it all it did was just stand there and yeah. then he had cardboard buildings that he made himself and he set up this kind of uh what's the word i'm looking for there's a diorama yeah this diorama with the figure right there and the buildings all around i think the book was sitting there yeah. next to that it's something that grabs people atten people's attention there's another guy there i can't remember the author's name but i remember the name of his books because sometimes i would hear it a hundred times a day because <laughs> <laughs> there was one year my table was right next to him so earworm was his, yeah. his way of <laughs> yeah well it was, the book series it was a graphic novel series it was called dire destiny and the only way i could describe this guy because this was the first time i when i heard this guy i was like how can i compete with this because this guy would get attention just for the pitch there are people who would come just to hear the pitch the only way I can describe him is that it's like if you took an auctioneer and a used car salesman and they had a baby. Because <laughs> that was exactly how he would pitch things. Nice. He talked fast like an auctioneer, but the way he would describe things and try to appeal to people and all that, it was like a used car salesman trying to convince you to buy what might be a piece of junk. Now, I'm not saying that his books are bad. I mean, yeah. Certainly not. But that was that sort of vibe that, vibe. that you get from him. That's awesome. And so, I mean, I, it was wonderful that the guy could do that. And I talked to him about how he came up with the pitch and all that. And it really came out of necessity because he was just starting and he had a lot of people he had to compete with. So he had to – he came up with it as a way to distinguish himself. Mm. But it doesn't have to be that. Some people do it visually. Some people do it auditorily. I've kicked around the idea of trying to come up with some sort of a creative pitch to try to use, but it, my plans never quite work out because a lot of times they involve getting other people and trying to recruit other people to do yeah. stuff with you. It doesn't always pan out. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I really like that idea, though, because as creators, we're naturally inspired to include parts of our personality and ourselves, express ourselves in our in our work. So. But then when we, when we get into the salesman mode, we sort of like, for those of us who don't know much, we kind of tend to assume that it's like, oh, I have to follow, you know, whatever these 10 steps the, you know, Mr. Professional tells me to do. Mm -hmm. But I really like that idea of like, that's also a, a, an avenue of 
self-expression of creativity. Yeah. That's pretty and cool. So at the moment, probably the wildest thing that I've done, even though I have ideas for other things that I would like to try, and I was given suggestions for things to do, like, you know, like the novel that you guys had me on for the first time, way back in episode three, you know, yeah. a Pandora's box. Someone suggested to me, you know, they asked, is the is the actual Pandora's box in? I said, no, it's more of a metaphor sort of yeah. a thing. But she suggested actually having a box that was supposed to be Pandora's box and people could open it and go in and get stuff. You open it and the music uh, comes out. Yeah, or I don't know. Right. Like I mean, they, they suggested, you know, they suggest, yeah, that's actually, that's a really good idea. That's a wonderful pun too. I like this. I like this. Or you could have, you know, like. It's, it's, open up Pandora radio. You know? Or like you could open it up and have one of those spring-loaded snakes kind of fly out. And I don't know if I would go that far because that'd be a lot of work to reset it and all that sort of thing, all that sort of stuff. But what I pretty much do now is with the you know my newest novel which if i remember correctly i guess you guys want to talk to me about that afterwards. well we see you yeah. should see you're having a book signing for yeah yeah we'll save that for later yeah <laughs> but uh yeah i have a pitch that i came up with that it's a it's a comedy novel so the pitch that i give for that i make sure to try to highlight what makes it funny mm -hmm. and yeah you know, like one of the things i mentioned is that a lot of the characters have puns for names I have a, a ninja villain in it whose name is Master Hyo, and I actually may say it like that, and yeah. then add in, you know, because his name is a killing word. So it's a nice little nerd reference yeah. that <laughs> people you know might get, and that be like, wow, you, you know, because that will be interesting to them. You know, you figured out how to use that in a different context. Yeah. For those who don't know, it was a reference to Dune. Now, what's funny is I, was, I say that, and I get no reaction, and then I just it just kind of kills the pitch at that point. <laughs> I was like, you do get what that was a joke, right? <laughs> It was. Have you not read Dune? <laughs> well, I haven't read Dune, so that's that's news to me. I thought it was a cool idea. <laughs> well, even if you've only seen the movie, you would get that. Some people it gets lost on, yeah. but then other people get it without me explaining it, and then they just think it's funny. Yeah. <laughs> no, so here's a question then, because it sounds, at least for you personally, promoting person to person, face to face has worked pretty well it's but worked, how, it's worked pretty it has how about internet well. promoting harder finding it's, your the challenge that you run into with trying to promote yourself on the internet is that the internet is at once the greatest advantage you could ever hope for and also the greatest disadvantage because there is a lot of noise on the internet mm -hmm. so you have to work hard to get yourself to rise above the noise and there are ways to do that. But I have to be honest, sometimes when I see people who've done it, it comes seems like it comes about through one of two things primarily. Either they invest money in making it happen mm -hmm. or they just get lucky. <laughs> you know, yeah. And just something catches on. You know? Yeah. You know, like our favorite website, you know, one of our favorite websites, homestarrunner.com. Yeah. Those guys do pretty much, you know, the brothers chaps, I think they pretty much do no advertising. Yeah. And they were they were getting super popular 15 years ago, back when nobody was quite using the internet like they are now to do promotion. And it just seemed like it just happened for them. You know what I think it is? It's probably the same sort of thing that you said you, you use in in face face is that like in Homestar's example, they use a very distinct self-expression mm -hmm. you know and the problem is doing that on the internet well sometimes we think maybe we fall in the same ruts of like i'm going to try to be like this top 10 list of how you're supposed to spread your name on the internet mm -hmm. and maybe yeah. it's not you know nathan enough or nick enough or whatever yeah or maybe you know yeah it's it's nick enough but no one cares yeah well i mean and the thing is is that i, I mean i do pay attention to how things were doing that you guys know me for you know for years i was opposed to getting twitter yeah even though it was one of those things i would go to writers i would go to you know the writer symposium at gen con and, yeah. or hear all these other writers talk about how what well, twitter is this wonderful thing for writers to do 
But it wasn't until this year that I finally broke down and said, you know what, I'm gonna give this Twitter thing a try because yeah. everyone keeps talking about it. And the weird thing is, is that it's been beneficial because before that, you know, I had my website which has a blog on it that I tried to be at least semi-consistent with. When before I wasn't, you know, I would just post something on there when I wanted to, but now I actually try to be regular yeah. with it. And then I had a professional Facebook page that I would funnel any, everything I wrote onto there yep. and try to get people to go to that, but I should try this Twitter thing. And it has been highly beneficial. I've been able to network with some other writers. Heck, I even pitched a book on Twitter. I managed to get a small publishing house that just stumbled upon me on Twitter, and I just looked at their page and saw what kind of stuff that they did, and all I did was ask them, hey, do you take unagented manuscripts? And they said, yes, we do. Do you have anything? Because they yeah. were being very conversational with yeah. me. And That's then in nice under 144 characters, I said, well, because you know I'm working on a book, but I that's going to be sent to the publisher that published Pandora's Boxes. Yeah. I think I'm still kind of contractually obligated with them. And I said, well, the, there's this novella that I worked on with this guy named Nick that, oh, hey, I, know that, that I, I said <laughs> that features a barbarian cooler than Conan. That's all I really said in this in this tweet. And they immediately room. said, we love it. Send it to us now. Here's our submission guidelines. <laughs> it's like, did I really just do that? <laughs> did I just do that under, under 144 characters? So then I immediately called you up and said, hey, Nick, I'm lighting a fire under your butt because you need to finish editing that because <laughs> I just found the publisher yep. for it. That'd be cool. And thankfully, they were nice enough. I said, it's it's still being edited, so it's not quite finished. When it is edited, I will get a hold of you and send it to you. And they said, yeah, thank, that's cool. So, you know, that's probably the biggest success story, so to speak, for yeah. me personally to come from Twitter. From, One of yeah. these days, I'm just going to put it up somewhere. You know, it should be mentioned, <laughs> like, on the, like, in the acknowledgments or something in the book. You know, this was pitched on Twitter, you know. Pitched on Twitter. <laughs> I think another thing to uh, break the mold of online marketing, too, I think what you do in terms of person-to-person -person stuff, I think that can blend really well with an online presence. And I say that primarily not from what I've done, but for uh, uh, when I was involved in archery tag. Because our the videos on our channel tend to have, you know, thousands of views. The the most of any video I ever put on there has, is over 800,000 views right now. So <laughs> I'm really looking forward to passing a million. But <laughs> that's partly because, you know, it's made for a company that they're also going to conventions, obviously a very different type of convention, archery and hunting and that kind of stuff. And it, I'm going to try archery <laughs> just because it sounds fun. And that video also has the owner of the company doing a bunch of trick shots. I was emulating dude perfect in that manner uh, <laughs> all, with all the trick shots. But, you know, again, that's a company, they had a, a support selling system. That was what they're all about. They're constantly sharing that around and stuff like that. So, I mean, I, th I think there's something to, if obviously the meeting people in person, so like what you're doing, getting it out there. But I like the idea of when you have a dedicated fan base that will help do your promoting for you. I think that really yeah, helps too. That was the, because even before the internet, I'm sure Dr. Hensley went over this with you too, because we, you know, because we all went to, well, except for you, you traitor. You know, we all went to the same school. <laughs> no regrets. You know? We went, all went to the same college. We'll you only went later. there for one year. Sorry. It was the year that counted. Yeah, it was. But anyway. Year, um, everything changed. And one of the things that, Doc always talked about was that one of the things that sells books better than anything 
put all the multi-million dollar campaigns and stuff that you want to out there, but the best thing that sells, not just books, but anything, is word of mouth. Word of mouth, it is true. And that's why I say the internet is both an advantage and a disadvantage in that, because the internet makes it even more possible for word of mouth to get, to put a product into the public eye. But again, like I said, there are so many people who are doing it that there's a lot of noise and you gotta rise above the noise. Mm -hmm. But there's, Plenty of examples where word of mouth made something huge. When we were going to school, the one that Doc always loved to reference when it came to that was the movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. It was a little film, limited release, but people kept talking about it so much Mm -hmm. that it slowly started picking up steam Mm -hmm. and more and more theaters started showing it so that, you know, at least... For a time, it kind of had a bit of a cult following. I don't know how many people care about it now, but you know, it at the time, when, yeah. at the time when it mattered, yeah, you know, it made a lot of money for a small independent. That's film. true, and that can happen for you know actually good books, and that can happen for some um, not so good books. <laughs> <laughs> Nathan's staring at me. We both, we both know what I book we're a talking troll about magnet because I dared criticize one of those earlier this year. But uh, before we get into <laughs> Fifty Shades woman. of stuff, uh, let's, <laughs> yeah, I hate that woman. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's wrap this up. What what's hmm, there's a side tangent question I thought about asking, but it it may or may not be related. But okay, since we talk about self publishing, <laughs> I'll I'll throw it out there. This is not exactly related to selling, but I saw someone say this. I don't remember if it was Twitter or Tumblr, but I thought it was interesting. I want to get you writers' perspective on it. The guy was basically saying that you shouldn't self-publish your first book or maybe even your second or third, but you should get a couple of books under your belt. Feel free to submit it, get some rejection letters, whatever, in order to really hone down and get your perfect ideal book. I thought that's an interesting perspective. I mean, practice makes perfect and all that. But uh, at the same time, not everyone has time to write that many words. I don't... I- on one hand, if everyone did something like that, it would keep a lot of just junk books out there mm-hmm. from get, you know. Be the, the problem with self-publishing. The upside is that anyone can publish a book, and the downside is anyone can publish a book. <laughs> um, but then again, you're right. Not everyone has ten books in them. Some people have just one book. Mm-hmm. Um, some people are not looking to reach ten million people. They're looking to reach like their community. You know, I you know I mm-hmm. help a guy publish a book. Who, you know, it's just for farmers. You know, it's yeah, it's just history of. And he's probably not going to go sell that to everyone. The man, that guy pushes books like crazy. He has sold hundreds of that thing. Oh, really? The man, the man is a, he'll do cold call. He used to be a swan salesman. Oh, okay. Oh, I remember those guys. First off, he knows everyone in the area and he just, he can sell books. Wow, that's impressive. Um, I mean, he'll say it's hard. He he puts a lot of work into it, and he does. He goes other conventions like he makes he helps restore old toys, and so there's a lot of this kind of old farmers at these things. Okay, so he he runs these circles. By old toys, you mean actual toys or farmers' toys? I think just old like old antique toys. Wow. Okay. But anyways, I'm of both opinions on that. I mean, I see what he means because you you go a couple books that people say, oh look, you really can write, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) and then you go and do your own thing. But again, there's some books out there that aren't ever going to be published by a real publisher. No, real sounds bad. By a <laughs> publisher who's looking to make... By a traditional publisher. Oh, by, by someone yeah. who's looking for, like, this is going to appeal to a large audience. Yeah. You know, this is mass marketable. Or this, this is something that we want to represent our company. Yeah, as, exactly. Yeah. So it's a, it's a you know, yeah. depends what you're going for. But I, I mean, at least the idea that the first thing you write is instantly awesome is not necessarily true. 
<laughs> yeah. And, and I say that obviously I've obviously I've participated in some of our yeah. self-publishing things too. Like, I've published a lot of stuff. And we stuff. know like, you know, things like the story project, you're never going to sell someone on that. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, a publisher anyway. Yeah, probably but, not. Although I, I don't know what exactly to think, uh, think of that statement. It seems to be predicated, if I understand how he said it correctly, that it would be better for someone to go the traditional route for one or two books before trying self-publishing. Is that what he was getting at? Something because, like that. Because I, yeah. I know enough stories from famous, traditionally published authors who admit that you know they had to write so many books. Like Brandon Sanderson yeah. on, on, in his podcast said that he wrote nine books before he got to the 10th one and someone wanted to publish it. Wow. Maybe. And, but, so I, I look at that and I think, does it really matter if you write you know three books and then you write a fourth one and the fourth one is the one that someone picks up? As opposed to, oh, you've gotten two books published and they both sold, you know, 200,000 copies. Now you can go self-publish. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, don't see what the, I don't see what the difference is because it can go either way. Well, I think I, which route you go. I think it was more in the idea of not that you have to earn your dues, but, well, maybe earn your dues in the sense of making sure you're actually putting out good material and not, but I think it's also that that perspective is also assuming that you haven't already gone through like someone like Dr. Hensley's program where you, Oh yeah. You've, yeah. That you know, was, that was writing boot camp. Well. <laughs> well, because, yeah. because Sanderson wrote nine books. He didn't tell publish them because they weren't worth publishing at that point. You know, I think he's revised some of them since yeah. made them good. So I think this is again off topic, but it depends. You need someone, some honest critiques to say, is this worth doing something with? Yeah. Yeah, pursuing but, a project. Yeah. yeah. And and uh, I guess the close us out, uh, I, I really like your story about the farmer guy because, you know, obviously, Nate's, you work in speculative fiction, but these general guidelines, I think, have broad applications. You could yeah. be a farmer, you could be a video producer, you know, whatever you create, there are ways that you can promote yourself. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I, just to kind of leave it Find off. Find your with, audience. Yeah. Well, and, th th and then to, to just to kind of leave it off, in several of the seminars that I've taken, they, they said that if you want to do self-publishing, there are three things. doesn't matter how good your marketing is necessarily, but they said there are three things that you have to have if you want to be successful. And that those top three things are good material, so mm -hmm. make sure it's edited and things like that. Make it make your manuscript as professional as possible. A good cover, especially mm -hmm. online. Yeah. <laughs> and weirdly enough, reviews. Yeah. Well, so that's actually become one of my big mantras, you know, because I know I've got the first two covered. At least I like to think I do. Yeah. So uh, what I do now is I, uh, as often as I can, I tell somebody, if you buy one of my books, go on Amazon, leave a review. Well, but here's the thing. There's so many books. People read what other people read. Yeah, that's true. If there's so, only a few reviews, then it's like, oh, no one's reading this. Which, again, goes back to the whole word of mouth thing. Yeah. yeah. So what it is is that, you know, the cover is kind of the gateway. Someone sees your cover art and they that brings them in. Then they read the book and it's actually good. So that makes them want to stay. And then they go tell everybody else, hey, come here. It's kind of like, you know, with a restaurant, you know, if you have a nice sign that might catch people's eye, but it's the food that makes people like you. And then that's when they all start go telling their friends, you need to come eat at this restaurant. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. The yeah. escort goes to die for. Three-prong approach. Uh, so that's pretty good. That's a pretty good wrap up for story school. So we'll go to soundtrack.
So for selling, I thought I'd try to find some sort of store theme. And um, there's not a lot on Oversea Remix, at least I found it on my brief, whatever. But um, there's this album called Bound Together. I think it probably, I might have picked this song from there once before. It's not on Maybe. Overclock Remix, but it's a, it's a Earthbound Remix album. Um, and on there is uh, the drugstore theme. Um, the song is called The Drugstore Sells Sparks. I was really hoping it was going to be drugstores or like that. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been awesome. And this is remixed by Elshon, which is uh, most famous for us for Terran Black. All right. Enjoy. Hopefully you enjoyed that um, fun drug song, cool drugstore song. Cool <laughs> stuff. I, I feel I should name drop our uh, other regular listener, Greg, because he's a huge Earthbound fan. That's and I'm true. sure he, en- did I say Earthbound? Earthbound <laughs> fan. And I'm Final sure Earthbound fantasy. But, uh, meanwhile, uh, Nathan, I guess he had to uh, he, get, head over to the podium over there. Yeah, I guess he's doing a reading from his book. So I guess let's take the microphone, the podcast over there real quick. Can you okay. do that? Yeah, sure. That sounds good. was finishing up, the porta potty suddenly started spinning slowly. George braced himself against the walls to keep his balance. This isn't funny, Ned and Gary, he shouted. It kept spinning. 
Did Larry the Loon put you up to this? No answer. The porta potty continued spinning. Knock it off! Completing a few full rotations, the porta potty stopped. George huffed, pulled up his zipper, and threw open the door. The peasant standing around him gasped, eyes wide, and suddenly stepped back. George rolled his eyes inside. Did Ned and Gary put you up to this? What'd they tell you to do? Pretend I was an ogre? The peasants were silent except for a few shrieks from frightened children and some exclamations of stay back. George wasn't amused. Knock it off. He walked toward them. They all lurched back. He's one of the shadows of awesome and disguised, cried a woman. An agent of Marcus the morally dubious, exclaimed a man. Who else dresses so gaudy and hides in a filth house? What? Injected uh, George. He reached into his pocket, produced the Renaissance Fair's glossy program, and perused it. He rattled off dopey-sounding character names like Princess Nippy Hotpants and the Merlinator, and the equally dopey-sounding names of the Eastern European actors who played them, like Alfonso Jones and Bruno Schmidthammer. The peasants gasped again. He reads incantations from a tiny spellbook, shouted a man. He is a sorcerer. No, I'm not, insisted George. And there's nothing in here about Shadows of Awesome or a character named Marcus the Morally Dubious. Are you all making this up as you go? A skinny little man ran toward the village shouting, Run for your lives! Lock your doors! Hide your women! For once, Mikey speaks wisdom! Go! cried a girl. With that, all the peasants ran from George as if he was a dragon. Wait! called George as he ran after them, waving his program. It was no use. Within seconds, the peasants retreated into every open door in the village and slammed them shut. Even the dragon's keep was inaccessible. George threw his arms up in agitation. Ned? Gary? I swear I'm going to kill you! Do you hear me? Unbeknownst to George, someone in the shadows did hear him. And it wasn't Ned or Gary. Frustrated that he was getting no answers, George shouted, This ends now! I'm tired of your games! Someone in the shadows unsheathed a kunai and perched himself on the edge of the roof of the dragon's keep, poised to strike. This isn't helping me get over my destiny, George paused as the despair of losing his girlfriend momentarily overtook him. My beautiful, beautiful destiny. Someone dove at George, bellowing a battle cry that sounded like a squealing pig on Elium. George snapped out of his sadness, looked up, and stepped aside. Someone hit the ground, tucked and rolled, and came to a stop in a martial arts pose. He was dressed head to toe in black, except for a small gap in his mask that exposed his fierce, narrow eyes. A metal plate bearing a striking fist adorned his forehead. A Kodachi sword hilt protruded from each of his shoulders. Two uh, sword sheaths formed an X on his back. He wore a leather sash bearing various small pointy objects. George huffed, a ninja? This is a renaissance fair, not a comic book convention, you stupid nerd. You dare frighten these villagers without authorization? The ninja shot back in a gruff Japanese-sounding accent. He switched between several different stances. This village is under the jurisdiction of the Shadows of Awesome by order of Marcus. Only we may terrorize it. Be gone, warlock. George was pulling his hair out. I'm not a warlock. I'm an accountant. Still switching between poses, the ninja retorted, A new class of sorcery, are you? George grated a curse through clenched teeth. For the last time, I'm not a sorcerer. There is no other way you could dodge my attacks. I am Master Hya! He punched the air with ferocity. Leader of the Shadows of Awesome. You can call me Yodum! He suddenly leaped ten feet in the air and threw shurikens at George. George jumped backward, avoiding the deadly darts. 
He glared at Master Hya, unimpressed. Nice trick, but I learned to dodge punks like you while avoiding bullies in high school. Ludicrous! exclaimed Master Hya as he landed. You dodged my attacks with ease! That's because, said George, stepping forward, you're just some idiot in a cost. Something sharp pierced the bottom of George's right foot. He flinched and stumbled, then lifted his foot to see a shuriken had punctured the sole of his tennis shoe. His eyes widened in a terrifying revelation. Hey, those shoes are new. How dare he... That's a really sharp toy. Not a toy. George? His gaze suddenly rose to Master Hya, who was posing menacingly, and then looked back the way he had come and saw not a porta potty, but an outhouse. He turned back to the ninja. George's mouth opened, but his throat was a clogged drain. So his coughs became drain cleaner and flushed his words from his lips. You're really a ninja. Brilliant deduction, accountant. He gestured at George and shouted, Ninjas, attack! A cacophony of battle cries accompanied the sudden barrage of sharp objects that George lunged to dodge. More ninjas appeared out of nowhere. George's heart jumped into his throat. Oh, snap. Oh, nice job, Nate. Hey, guys. Hi. So this is from the book Ninjas and Talking Trees mm-hmm. by Nathan Martian. Mm-hmm. And thought, My newest novel. Yes, your newest novel. And we thought since the podcast left us, uh, stopped us here, we might as well talk about it for a bit. Yeah, we haven't done an author interview in quite a while. And uh, so what led you? I, I believe there's a story behind the title of this book. <laughs> Actually, yes. It has to do with another former guest that you've had on the show, Dr. Pam Jordan, now Dr. Pam Jordan Long. Though at the time, she, was, she wasn't married yet. My final semester at Taylor University, I was taking one of her literature classes. She offered one on C.S. Lewis and George MacDonald. Because George MacDonald was barely a contemporary of Lewis, but I'm, we're talking, you know, George MacDonald died when Lewis was about 10, yeah. you know. Mm. But Lewis said that he read a lot of MacDonald when, when he was growing up, and he said that there isn't a book that he's written where he doesn't make at least some sort of indirect allusion to something that George MacDonald has written. Hmm. So we were reading books by the both of them. One of them was a book called Fantasties by George MacDonald. It was a fantasy book. And we spent two or three class periods discussing that particular novel. On the first day, I got to the classroom a little bit early, ran into one of my classmates, and he said he'd already finished the book and mentioned that the, the middle portion of the novel was a little bit slow. And I should clarify, I forgot to mention this, there are talking trees in this book, in a, couple, in a chapter, I think. And, but anyway, so my classmate said it was a little, the book was a little bit slow in the middle and joked with me that it would have been more exciting if there were ninjas in it. And so <laughs> well, oh, that, that's, that's kind of funny. Guy. What wouldn't be better with ninjas? <laughs> oh, yeah, what wouldn't be better? Ninjas make everything better. You just add ninjas to anything. It's yeah. instant awesome. But, <laughs> so I thought it was going to end there. We got into the class where we're discussing the book. He brings the same thing up, makes the same joke in class. It became the running gag for the rest of the semester in the class. When, when we're talking about all the rest of the books that we're, in, uh, that we're getting to, we kept saying that, oh, this doesn't have ninjas in it, nor does it have talking trees. And then we decided as a class that all good stories must have ninjas and talking trees in them. <laughs> it was so prolific that Dr. Jordan, who is normally a, you know, a very dignified, a very serious literature professor, it, she was enjoying it so much that she put Ninjas and Talking Trees on the final exam. 
<laughs> as an item of identification. And then the funny thing was when I talked with her afterward, when she was grading all these things, she said I was the only one who at least tried to have fun trying to, uh, uh, trying to identify that and everyone else was trying to be serious. I thought, you've got to be kidding me, right? That's crazy. You know? So, and then I told her that at some point, at some point in my writing career, I was going, because I couldn't find a book or a story that had ninjas and talking trees in it. I would find one, one stories with one or the other, but never both. I said, I'm going to write a book that has ninjas and talking trees in it, and I'm going to dedicate it to you, which is exactly what this is. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Now, here's a question, because you've been on here before for books. One for Pandora's Box, which is a military science fiction, mm-hmm. and one's for Destroyer, which is a big monster well, story. Well, I, I read an excerpt. From well, okay. Well, we've mentioned it on here yeah. before. And then this is Ninja's Talking Trees, which is a, is a humorous, almost spoof fantasy. Yeah, almost spoof. So here's my question. What is different about writing this versus the other two? <laughs> I mean, th- does your mind I have to completely switch? a whole heck of a lot more Would jokes. You- <laughs> <laughs> For one thing. I mean, yeah, there's, yeah. A little, there's a little bit of humor in both of those previous books, but it's kind of those things where you, you throw them in there to kind of offset how serious everything is. But is it- Although with Destroyer, there's a little bit of kind of inherent cheese That's in, in yeah. Destroyer, which... Pandora's box is kind of the opposite of what I would call it. It was completely opposite. Not a laugh riot, exactly. Yeah, so I guess my question is, is is it harder writing the humor than the serious, or are there just different sides of your brain? It really is kind of different sides uh, sides of your brain. But sometimes it depends on the day. You know, there's that old adage, you know, death is easy, comedy is hard. I can tell you there were days when I was trying to write this where it was hard. But the the way I went about writing it is I would always come up with... I like to say that this book is, and the rest of the series, because this is actually book one of a series, and I want to do four more, is I have ideas or concepts, I guess you could say, that would be like the basic plots of four more books, mostly because there were a lot of gags that came to my mind that I didn't quite fit into this yeah, and that I want to actually be able to use. So anyway, I kind of say this is kind of the repository for my quirky sense of humor. So... There were always, you know, I would come up with some sort of, I would think or say something that would sound rather absurdist and I thought it was really funny and then there would be other people who would think it was funny and said, I need to use that in a story someplace. So as I was writing it, there were certain comedic beats that I already had in my mind. But when you're writing comedy, you can't just have a joke unless you're, you know, trying to do something where you have this long buildup to a big punchline. Yeah. But generally, when you're writing comedy, you have to have jokes pretty often. I think I took a, a screenwriting seminar once where he said, if you're writing a script for a sitcom episode, you have you practically have to time it. You have to have a joke, I think, like every like six to ten seconds or something like that. You have to have them coming. Yeah. So even though I have certain beats in my head, because I knew the characters well enough, because uh, a lot of the humor is very character driven, I would kind of improv it as I would go, you know, so I'd be like, here's these certain beats that I want to hit, but I need to have jokes in between. Mm -hmm. And then I would just kind of let the characters carry me along and they would almost like that, you know, like when you're writing characters kind of take on a life of their own anyway. So when you're writing a comedy, they suddenly say or do something that just feels natural to what the characters are doing. And then I just left it in there and just waited to see if anyone else thought it was funny. You know, <laughs> it was funny to me. Sure. You know, now you described it earlier as almost spoof, or maybe that was Nick describing. I don't yeah, know. he did that. <laughs> okay. But you, you did say it sounded like that was accurate, right? It's somewhat accurate. The, the, the idea behind this is that it's not, 
specifically say a Lord of the Rings parody yeah, or yeah. something like that. The uh, the premise behind this was that I wanted to take a lot of the tropes and conventions of fantasy stories and then either embrace them lovingly but in a, you know, a humorous fashion yeah. or it completely subverts them and kind of deconstructs them a bit. Would it be fair to say it's sort of like a fantasy version of Galaxy Quest? In a way, <laughs> uh, in a way you could you, know, you could say that. The it's been a while since I've watched Galaxy Quest, which I'm slightly I I own that movie, but I haven't watched it. I haven't seen it for ages. I just I just remember it being like they loved Star Trek, but it was making fun of a lot of the conventions. Yeah, I guess though in some ways I would like to I kind of like to compare it to say uh, a Mel Brooks film. Okay. The not like the ones that are very specific, you know, like Robin Hood Men in Tights is definitely is specifically a spoof of Robin Hood uh, Prince of Thieves. I think it was going with Kevin Costner. Is it Kevin Costner? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Or uh, Spaceballs, which is obviously Star Wars, yeah. yeah, but more like the stuff that he did, like like Blazing Saddles, which yeah. is just uh, a genre, which basically. is kind of parodying the Western genre. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or I'm trying to think of another one that would be fitting. Um, uh, Young Frankenstein, Young maybe? Frankenstein. Although that's sort it's of specific. Very Frankenstein. Yeah, it's Frankenstein, but it's also kind of spoofing the universe, the old Universal horror movies, monster that movies, so, yeah. monster movies, that sort of a thing. Yeah, or. Um, this was not solely his project, but he uh, back in the '60s he wrote for television, and one of the shows that he worked on was Get Smart, oh, which yeah. is mm-hmm. a spoof of the spy uh, genre, the super spy genre mm-hmm. that was becoming super popular at the time. Yeah. Now, the most obvious connection that people are probably making is to James Bond, yeah, but there's other Get things. Smart is not specifically James Bond. It takes a lot; it just takes a lot of the ideas and concepts of a super spy story. Yeah. And implements them in so, humorous fashion. So you fashion. do you do that the same way with the fans? Yeah. So like one of the first thoughts, because like I said, I, when I start off with my stories, and this is very character driven. Yeah. A lot of my stuff tends to be character driven. So the way I would initially would try to come up with what the jokes would be would be what is a funny character that I could have. And George wanna, is the straight man. Well, yeah, George is the straight man. He's an accountant, as he identifies yeah. in the excerpt that I guess you guys overheard. Yeah. The idea being that you know he's. The straight man, he's the everyman. He's not into the nerdy stuff. He has yeah. his couple of Ned and Gary are his two super nerdy friends. Yeah. You know, love playing D&D and things like that. So my initial idea for him is that I wanted to be a guy who's totally not into it. So if he gets transported to a quirky fantasy world, not only is he overwhelmed by the fact that he's in a weird place, it's a weird place that operates on the sort of rules that he, the stuff that his buddies are into, and he doesn't understand that. So he's doubly confused. Yeah. But within the fantasy realm, what I did is I modeled a lot of the characters after the sorts of archetypes that you would see in fantasy stories. So initially when I was coming up with concepts for what the the subsequent books were going to be is that initially it was just focusing on what is a villain archetype you see in a, in a fantasy story and can I use that as kind of my starting point and then build off of them. Mm-hmm. So one of the first archetypes that came to my mind is the tyrant, yeah. the corrupt king. He usurps the righteous king. And yeah, then, yeah, yeah, that sort of, a th- that, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So uh, Marcus the Morally Dubious, who's mentioned in the in the excerpt that I read, he is the said king. So I was thinking, well, how could I make the tyrant funny? That you know, isn't something you haven't seen before. So another college inspiration that I drew upon was the, the Evil Overlord list, which we talked yeah. about actually on one of the first Writers Club meetings that I went to, which is essentially this guy who's listing off a lot of the dumb mistakes that villains make in in books and movies, and how it, it you know, these, the sorts of things that always lead to their downfall, and yeah. why wouldn't they be smart enough to avoid these sorts of things? So it was phrased usually in a you know, if I was an Evil Overlord, I would not do this, and you, yeah. and you inject something. So I thought, what if I had a character 
who's kind of your, you know, Alexander the Great sort of a guy, you know, conquers the known realm when he's, you know, 18 years old, really young. And he does it because he has something that's akin to the Eva Overlord list that tells him all of the dumb mistakes that, that villains make well, the evil overlords yeah. make so that that allows him to take over and not only take over, but he does it swiftly. And every hero who comes after him, he just instantly kills because he doesn't play the game. He doesn't play by the dumb rules. He, he just monologue. He doesn't monologue. <laughs> he doesn't, you know, he doesn't do any of that stuff. He's just like, I'm done. You know, he just, so that's what he does. Well, the problem is, is that when George shows up, he's been in charge for about 10 years and even though you know he rules all he surveys, master of his domain, he's bored out of his skull <laughs> because he has no worthy adversary. So he's got everything, but he's not happy because he's not having fun anymore. Yeah. So that was the basic gist. That, that concept was the like the defining characteristic of that character of Marcus, and I just kind of built everything about his character around that, and then thought, you know, what kind of characters can I surround him with that he could play off of that that would be funny and just kind of, you know, went from there. I have to say my favorite, I've, I've only read the first few chapters. I'm about chapter 10 right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've got quite a colorful cast of characters. My favorite is one that we saw in that scene that you read. That's Master Hia. Yes, sir. <laughs> yeah, because his name is a killing word. But uh, I, I just love the chapter. The last one I read is where they were at the like ninja school. Oh, and there's like, there's like con- ninja going on. Yeah, well, let me explain the context a little bit. Um, Master Hia, as in the excerpt, is the, the leader of a troop of ninjas. They are called the the Shadows of Awesome. They are pretty much, especially Master Hya is, at the time when I was initially conceptualizing, is there's a lot of internet memes and jokes about ninjas. Not quite as many now, which makes me feel like I kind of missed an opportunity a little bit, waiting as long as I did to get this thing in print. But they are kind of the embodiment of all of those you know jokes that people make about yeah. the uh, about ninjas. They are not realistic ninjas at all. They are pop culture ninjas, <laughs> very much. So. And they do all kinds of things. Yeah. There is a point where, because uh, not only is he the leader of that troop, he's one point in this trinity of villains that who all work for Marcus that are called the Trio of Terror. And the other two members of the trio are meeting with him, and they're going into the training area where all the ninjas are. <laughs> interestingly, interestingly, I saw a Bond film, one of the old Bond films recently, that actually had a scene quite similar to this, and it made me <laughs> laugh a little bit. <laughs> but uh, where they're walking through, they're trying to have this meeting with him. So it's these things, it's moving the plot along, and I just randomly mentioned like all these crazy things that are just happening in the background with all these insane ninja things going on. You know, I can't even remember all this. Specifics, to be honest, and like insane and smoke jumps, bombs and, and smoke bombs, and, and people will be getting thrown through walls. Yeah, and yeah people and, and and everyone just reacts to it casually. I, it kind of reminds like me of in uh, some of the Pink Panther movies. There's a recurring gag where Inspector Clouseau had this guy that would randomly—I don't know if it was a sidekick or what—it yeah. would randomly a- attack him, and he, <laughs> he and, and he wanted him to do it, so he yeah. was always prepared for it. <laughs> but like, it'd be like sitting at a restaurant, and then suddenly some guy would come in with like a machete or. Or something and he's like <laughs> have to flip him over and it, was, it basically yeah. turned the whole restaurant into chaos i need to watch the the original pink panther movies i've only seen the remake and the sequel actually which... the, the very first pink panther movie is surprisingly dull like there's <laughs> there's some real the the comedic stuff is really funny the stuff with david niman who's they try to do a big romance they i think they try to emulate bond maybe but it's just dull <laughs> but the when they start the later movies when they start start focusing exclusively on Clouseau, it's when it really 
shines. Mm -hmm. okay, but, but anyway. There are a lot of very fun characters in this book. Yeah, um, your favorite is Marshall. Marshall. Rereading it again, I'm like, yeah, Marshall's awesome. Well, and the weird thing is, is <laughs> I don't that because I, I was, I was giving you, you maybe, uh, I think you've probably you should, seen you, him, probably seen him yet. yet. He hasn't okay. become a main character yet. Okay. But uh, it was interesting because I was feeding you the chapters as I was finishing them, and then you left a comment in one of them that actually ended up making me actually reconsider how I was setting Marshall up, and I'm glad that you did because I think I made him a much funnier character because of that, and it's a character I can use much more, much better in subsequent yeah. books. The idea behind Marshall, after your suggestion, which kind of, like I said, just kind of came by accident, because initially I was just focusing on the, the idea that he's kind of going to be like George's fanboy. Yeah. Because George finds out that he's the chosen one, oh, the yeah. hero of legend, because every fantasy story has a chosen one. Yeah, exactly. So I have to play with the chosen one, you know, the chosen one trope. So he finds out that George is supposed to be the chosen one. George is all like, I don't want to be the chosen one. Yeah. yeah. And so he's just like, oh, I love you because you're the chosen one. You know, the hero yeah. of legend. He just, you know, initially, the, his defining characteristic would be he was just the crazy fanboy. Yeah. Well, you interpreted a scene with, with Marshall differently than I had initially intended it to be taken, where he's getting defeated by one of the trio of terror whose quirk is that she cannot be defeated in battle so long as she remains a virgin, which is what, you know, the, the don't worry, it doesn't get dirty or yeah. anything, but it's just, you know, this funny idea that, you know, you know, anyway, I'll explain it later maybe. But anyway, so he gets defeated by her, you know, just soundly, and you thought that the reason he got beat is because he's like Inspector Gadget. He yeah. thinks he's the coolest guy in the room. <laughs> But he's completely incompetent, just doesn't realize he is. And then when I when you mentioned that to me, I thought, that's genius. <laughs> I can use that. So that became his defining characteristic. And, and he's walking, the fanboy stuff was secondary. Yeah. And he has he he's a walking cliche machine. Yeah, pretty much. That yeah. That, what, the idea is that he is the embodiment of every fantasy hero you can think of. Like if George wasn't around being the hero of legend. Marshall would at least be trying. Yeah. You know, he's super good. He spits out the cliches. So it's kind of like, inspirational like, like quotes. yeah, inspiration, like the Sphinx yeah. from Mystery Men. That was one thing that came to my mind when I was writing him, <laughs> you know. And like so he, and he's always he's always positive. He's always, you know, he like he'll give you know little motivational speeches and all of that yeah. sort of a yeah, thing. He's fine. Except, like I said, he's completely incompetent. So yeah. like picture like Link from Zelda or Legolas from Lord of the Rings. But incompetent. Or yeah, but completely inept, but he doesn't know he's inept. Yeah. <laughs> like beautiful. Yeah, yeah. he's the so, Nick's and, favorite character. So and there's a lot of fun characters like that in the book. So where where can we find this besides uh, the corner at the around the corner? The, no, the shop around the corner. <laughs> the shop around the corner. It is available on Amazon. Uh, you can find it just you know just by searching you know ninjas and talking trees. The name of the series is going to be the Misadventures of George Francis. <laughs> And uh, I found that it's also, weirdly enough, it's also on barnesandnoble.com. I don't know how it got there. CreateSpace has connections, apparently. Yeah. Okay. They, 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 so it's on there, and I will be hopefully getting an, uh, an ebook version of it completed at some point. And if you purchase it, leave a review. Yes. <laughs> Always leave reviews. <laughs> the more you know, the more you know. <laughs> do, 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 do. <laughs> Anyways. A different, a different style for uh, Nathan, but I think it's enjoyable. 
and uh, check quirky. it out. Very quirky. Yeah, I can't stay in the you know the depressing world of Pandora's box too much, <laughs> unless yeah. I want to start taking Prozac. You have to come up for air. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, uh, the the store's about ready to close here. Oh, okay. Well, Nathan, thanks for taking time. I'm sorry you didn't really, we, we kind of distracted you from signing books here nah, for a while. Yeah, you'd be surprised how often that happens. <laughs> <laughs> but we're glad you could be here, and I'm glad we could be here. Yes. Because that's uh, what happens mm-hmm. with the podcast. Let's uh, do some contact info before our last soundtrack. All right. Uh, if you want to listen to more of our podcasts, you can always find us at drearyoldtrainsofthought.blogspot.com. And you can subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher. And please uh, join us for uh, the Weekly Hijack if you like Doctor Who or Lost or Once Upon a Time. Yeah. Or which... if you don't like them. <laughs> I mean, you can hear us either say good or bad things about them, depending on the episode. Usually good things, although Once Upon a Time is it's kind of... Uh, ups, there's ups and downs. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. It, that's probably the most entertaining of the Weekly Hijacks. <laughs> I just like hearing your brother rage. Yeah. <laughs> But they've been doing so well this season. They haven't had as much rage from that. Yes, that's <laughs> so, true. But um, So, Nathan, since we're here, how about you give us our, our final soundtrack? Well, before I do that, just because I hear everyone in their podcast do this, just like you should leave reviews for my books, you should leave these two gentlemen's podcasts five-star reviews on iTunes. That's true. That'll I just nice. wanted to throw that out there. That is a good point. Anyway, once again, I will be uh, bringing on a guest soundtrack, which I thank you guys for letting me do that. As I mentioned... Ever since that class, I did endeavor to see if I could actually find a story that featured ninjas and talking trees in it. And I never really found one. The closest I've gotten, other than some random anime that whose which title I can't remember right now, the, the closest I've ever gotten was the 2011 Mortal Kombat reboot on the PlayStation 3 and the Xbox 360, which most people refer to as Mortal Kombat 9, even though the 9 is not in the title. Except in that one, obviously, you know, it's Mortal Kombat, so it has ninjas in it. And there are trees who have faces, but they do not talk, they eat people. Close enough. (laughs) Okay, we'll take it. So it's ninjas and man-eating trees. (laughs) So I figured that I should have a Mortal Kombat remix. Well, the trouble is, is that there are, strangely enough, sparse Mortal Kombat remixes on OC Remix, one of which I think you guys have already had on the podcast, mm-hmm. but I managed to find out. Uh, then I thought, well, how about I use the, you know, that cheesy, you know, song that they used in the old Mortal Kombat movie that people kind of think of as the Mortal Kombat movie theme song, even though it existed before that. Uh, then I found out that at one point on OC Remix, there was a remix of that, but then they changed their rules and they said, well, since this technically isn't in any of the games, we're not going to keep it. So, but But then Nick told me that he found it on a website that's dedicated to the songs that got kicked off of OC Remix. Everything lives on the internet forever. (laughs) (laughs) So I believe it is called Complete Control. It is a remix of uh, the original track, which was called Techno Syndrome by a duo of techno artists who called themselves the Immortals on that original album. And just so I could strengthen the uh, OC Remix connection, there is a quotation here from DJ Pretzel who described the original track as, quote, read the character names in a deep tenor while not breaking out into laughter, then have a dude shout Mortal Kombat as if his spleen was being removed. (laughs) That's DJ Pretzel. (laughs) 
All right. Sounds fun. So, oh, and this is remixed by Beat Drop, correct? Yes, so. if I remember correctly. So uh, we should be out of here before they kick us out or the bulldozers knock down this place. Hey, One, hey, what are the two? Hey, yeah. guys, is that Tom Hanks? I, I can't be. I don't think so. No, it, sure? looks, it looks more like Forrest Gump. Yeah. Oh, so. uh, yeah, you're probably right. So um, anyways, this has been um, Nick. And this is Tim. And Nate. Bye-bye. Adios.